So the whole point of this series is to bring that to light, that the struggle is real, that all of us really struggle with the same things. And y'all, we've talked about some things that are extremely personal. Honestly, whether it be idolatry or the image struggle or the faith and endurance struggle. Last week, Jesse preached on the trust struggle, some things that are really personal for us. But tonight, I think it hits a different area. Tonight, we're gonna be talking about the purity struggle. The purity struggle. And even whenever I say the purity struggle, typically the first thing you think of whenever I say purity struggle is, oh, we're gonna have a talk about sex. Well, in some ways, yes. But in many ways, no, we're gonna be talking about not our bar of what we consider purity, but what is God's bar? What is God's standard? What do we see the Lord have to say on this matter? And so actually what we're gonna do is we're gonna go to Jesus himself, some of his teachings. So if you have a Bible with you, we're gonna be in the first gospel, which is Matthew. And we're gonna be in Matthew chapter five. And if you don't know this, Jesus has just come on the scene, chapter four, It ends with him saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. If the kingdom of God is at hand, that means the king is here. The kingdom isn't where the king is not. If the kingdom is coming, that means the king is here. And Jesus begins to teach. It says he goes up on the mountain and and his disciples come and they sit down and he begins to teach them. And what the Sermon on the Mount is, is it's it's Jesus teaching his disciples, what does it mean to be followers of my kingdom? What does it mean to be citizens of God's kingdom? And he starts the first part of it talking about the character of the follower of Jesus. That's the Beatitudes. And he talks about the influence of the follower of Jesus. You probably know some of those passages, the salt and light. And then he gets to the righteousness of those who call themselves believers. What should their righteousness be like? Verse 17, he comes out and basically he says that that he does not come to abolish the law and the prophets. No, he hasn't come to abolish them, but he's come to fulfill them. He hasn't come to change the Old Testament. He's come to fulfill the Old Testament. And then in verse 20, he tells them that your righteousness does not exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. You will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And y'all, the people who were listening, besides his disciples, would have been shocked to hear him say, if your righteousness has to exceed them, in order to get into heaven. It would be like you imagining the holiest person you know, the most pure person you know, the godliest person you know, and God saying, if you're not more righteous than them, you're not gonna make it. For them, it would have been a shocking teaching. But really what Jesus is trying to say is their righteousness is not God's righteousness. And so he begins to work alongside these two things. I haven't come to abolish the Old Testament, but to fulfill it, and your righteousness has to exceed theirs. What does righteousness look like in God's eyes? And that's where he goes to talking about the sixth of the Ten Commandments, about anger, and then he moves on to the seventh of the Ten Commandments, which is adultery, which is where we're going to pick up tonight. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 and 28. And before we jump in, I want to say this. We're going to be looking specifically at purity through God's lens, how he views it. And throughout all this, we're going to look at two main areas. Two main ways that Jesus is teaching us regarding purity. So verse 27 and 28 says this. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. That's the seventh of the Ten Commandments. You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The first lesson that we see Jesus is teaching them is this. He's showing them God's standard of purity. He's showing them God's standard of purity. And on the onset, let me go ahead and say this, that whenever Jesus, he's talking to men, which is why he talks about if you lust after a woman, then this. But this is vice versa. Girls struggle with lust, 
as well as guys do. It might not be as much, it might not be as pervasive, but girls struggle with lust just as well as guys struggle with lust. So this goes both ways. But basically he brings out what the Pharisees are saying. He tells them, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now here's something about the Pharisees and scribes. They were extremely clever in doing what made them feel good. So they had this really narrow definition of what sexual sin looked like. It was extremely narrow. They said, if you commit adultery, that is sexual sin. But they had a broad definition of sexual purity. Anything that isn't adultery is good to go. So they had a narrow view of what sexual sin was, adultery. In other words, sleeping with someone who isn't your spouse or a broad definition of what sexual purity looked like. As long as you're not doing that, you're good. And Jesus comes to set the table straight and say, this is not uh, God's standard. Jesus gets right to the heart of the matter and he says, God, not just, God does not just care about what you do, but he cares about who you are. In essence, he says this, purity is not just a matter of actions, it is a matter of intent. Purity is not just a matter of action, but it is also a matter of intent. Jesus doesn't say just, fi- just flee the physical act. He says flee the mental act. He doesn't just say just guard your actions. He says guard your mind. In other words, he's saying don't just repent of wrong actions. We must also repent and turn from wrong desires. Jesus says sexual sin isn't just what is outside of you, but also what is inside of you. And y'all, what we see here is Jesus is really raising the bar as what purity really is. And in our culture today, this is really raising the bar, right? To what purity really is. It's purity both outwardly and inwardly. You see, the Pharisees tried to tiptoe their way around this command for their own purposes. And honestly, we do this as well. We do this as well. Much like the Pharisees, we are guilty of trying to tiptoe around this obvious command of the Lord. Therefore, we ask questions like these. We may say, so how far is too far in a relationship? I mean, how much is too much? How far is too far? Really, we're trying to say, how much can I still do and not feel bad about it? To which I've heard said before, I would reply, well, do with her as much as you would want your your spouse to do with somebody else. So in other words, whatever you're comfortable doing with her, I want you to feel comfortable about somebody else doing that with your future spouse, whatever it might be. But ultimately as well, why are we asking questions about how far is too far? Because we want to know where the line is. We want to go to the point where we can say, well, as long as we don't have sex, we're good, right? This is one of the reasons we ask the question, well, what if we love each other? What if we know that we're going to get married? Well, if you really love each other, you'll do it God's way. If you really love each other, then you won't go after lustful desire inside of the midst of a relationship. Y'all hear me, It's, it's very difficult to remain pure in a relationship, but it is nowhere near impossible at all nowhere near impossible and and we get this idea somehow that we can be impure in our relationship and not be obedient to the lord and not control our bodies then somehow whenever we get married we'll be obedient to the lord and only have sex with each other part of the reason that that divorce is so prevalent right now part of the reason that marriage is crumbled is because people are not (laughs) obedient to the lord before they get in a relationship therefore it translates to disobedience within a relationship If you're not obedient to God now, what makes you think that they're gonna be obedient to God then? If you're not abstaining now, what makes you think you will then? You'll hear other things like, as long as you stare at someone, it's okay. It's just really not that big of a deal. I've heard guys put it this way. I can look at the menu without having to eat. I can look at the menu without ordering everything, right? And I go, well, yeah, you you can, but just because that's the case, 
That, that, that's lowering the standard of what purity really is. Or you may hear somebody say, what if I only watch pornography or masturbate once every so often? If it's in private, it doesn't affect anybody, right? Well, as I heard somebody say one time to me is, is look, while sin may be private, it's never personal. It affects the people that are around you. It affects those that you eventually will get in a relationship with. I've heard this, masturbation is okay since it's not with someone else. It keeps me from being impure. And I go, you got the wrong definition of what impurity really is. Yo, I've, I heard this recently and it just baffles me. This idea that there's a movement now regarding of how you need to do this. Masturbation is healthy for you to learn self-love and learn how you want to be pleased. Now, what I want to say to that is this. If it's ever called self-love, it's not real love. Love is never self-seeking. Love is never self-centered. This idea of you got to figure it out for yourself, it makes sex about who? It's about me, my wants, my desires, what I want versus the way God created it to be between one man, one woman in marriage where I'm not getting something, but I'm giving myself to somebody for them. Go to Song of Solomon. You can read some more details about that. We also tiptoe around other things like, like, well, maybe it's not my fault that guys lust after me or it's not my fault that girls lust after me. Everybody's heard that, you know, the joke of, you know, I don't want to be a stumbling block, right? But I want you to really think about this. Do you dress to be attractive? Which is okay. That's good. I would say, good, dress to be attractive. Or do you dress to be seductive or to flaunt what you have? Do you post to post or do you post to make somebody stop? and stare and desire. Basically, what's your goal with how you present yourselves to others? The one that's doing the lusting oftentimes isn't the only one at fault. And y'all hear me, I wanna, I wanna say this on the outset that Jesus' standard of purity is so elevated that it almost seems ridiculous to us. Better yet, it almost seems impossible to us, right? We're in a culture that knows nothing about this. We're in a world where honestly, if we're honest, we know nothing about this. Whenever we see Jesus say, but I say to you, if you even look at someone with lustful intents, you've committed adultery in your heart. And for all of us, we're immediately convicted, right? Everybody in this room is on the same page here. And you know, truthfully, while we may try and find room for sin, Jesus sets the record straight regarding purity. If we think about someone with lustful intent, we are committing adultery. And this is tough, right? This is a tough teaching. Ephesians 5, 1 through 4, it, 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 it talks about this where Paul is saying, you need to be imitators of God as his beloved children. Walk in love. And he talks about how God gave himself up for us. That's what love is. It's, it's a giving of yourself in obedience to the Lord. Then immediately after talking about being an imitator of God, walking in love, the first thing he takes his mind to in verse three is to flee from sexual immorality. But immora sexual immorality and impurity must not even be named among you as is improper for the saints. And then Paul even goes, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking amongst you. In other words, don't even let what come out of your mouth be impure. Y'all, the bar of holiness the bar of purity that is set out by God is high, but it's not unattainable by us. It's not too far above us. It's not mean, it is for our own good. Y'all think it's interesting as I'm reading this. 2,000 years ago, they struggled with lust. I mean, literally back then they wore robes, long flannels, nothing was showing any curves, right? 
Lust is obviously not just a problem of what we see. It's a problem from inside of ourselves. It's a problem with who we are. It's a problem with the human mind. You know, the human mind is terribly in need of transformation. It's terribly in need of being rewired. That's why you see Ephesians 4, 22 through 24, Paul's talking, he says, put off your old self, put on your new self. And in the middle, he says, the way you do that is be renewed in the spirit of your minds. To put off the old you and put on the new you, something's gotta change in your mind. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, the word renewed is continual, it's ongoing. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed or, or, or molded to this world, but be transformed in the renewal of your mind. Your, our minds need redeeming. And I want to say this as well. I'll never forget, I was talking to my mentor at one point, just talking to him in general about, I can't remember what, what we were talking about. I know it was about impurity regarding whether it was sleeping around or pornography or something like that. And he made the comment that's really stuck with me. He said, Merrick, you got to realize we're fighting and we've been fighting an unfair battle. An unfair battle. The people that are in your ministry were given a phone before they were ever ready to know what to do with it. The people that were in your ministry were given access to all sorts of things before they were ready to handle that. If there's such thing as being fully ready to handle that. And y'all understand for this generation specifically, y'all been brought up in a culture that has taught you what it means to be pure. Y'all been handed phones, you've been handed computers, you've been handed stuff and entrusted with things to make decisions where you might not be ready for that. Y'all, you're probably gonna laugh in thinking about this. I wasn't allowed to have a TV in my room growing up. There was no such thing as privacy there. We weren't allowed to go to my room to even talk on the phone. You gotta talk on the wire in there. We could take it to our room, but she said no. My mom would go, no, you can't talk in your room. You can't have a TV in your room. They, they really protected us in a lot of ways with privacy and things like that. Now imagine you can get to whatever you want wherever you're at anytime. And by any means, the culture doesn't make it seem like you're missing out if you're doing this. They make it seem like you're missing out if you're not, right? Girls, I, I think about the pressure that's put on you regarding the culture of how you're called to portray yourself, of how used to elegance was held high, dignity was held high, modesty was held high. Now it's the exact opposite. You don't get likes for modesty. You don't get attention for modesty. You're not being told to be modest. You're being encouraged and pushed to show what you have, flaunt what you have. If it's their problem, it's their problem. And guys, girls, all of y'all, we are fighting a tough battle. There's two main ways. There's several things. I took off the list because I just want to talk about two things. There's two main ways the culture has attacked our minds and lowered the standards regarding purity. In a lot of ways, this has acted as our education. The first thing is this, the decline of standards in entertainment. The decline of standards in entertainment. I'm not going to read it off today, but I was reading about, there was strict guidelines and standards in the 50s, 60s, 70s, really up even until the 80s of what television was supposed to be about. And so much of it was guarding people. So much of it was making sure that anybody could watch it any time, no matter what it was. And then it's like something shifted from full house and family matters to what we have today. There's just been this shift in entertainment where now what we call entertainment 
is really rough, right? It's really sinful in a lot of ways. We need to check the stuff, honestly, that we call entertainment. And I get it. We're in a Netflix world. We're in a world where you're called to watch all the shows and do all this. We're in a world where, where music that may be just completely filthy wins awards. I was noticing this one day whenever I went to a basketball game. I was listening to some of the songs and I was like, man, I'm pretty sure I just heard it say that, but I'm not sure if it did or not. There's music around that, honestly, if you were to read the lyrics and read them out loud, if I were to read them out loud to you up here, you would be uncomfortable with me saying it. There are TV shows that can be based in sinful things that are winning awards. They get their fifth, their 10th, their, I don't know, 15th, 20th season that people continue to watch though they're based in selfishness, lust, adultery, affairs, immorality, or superficial relationships and pushing people to do that. Ultimately, we're in an age where the goal of media is not excellence. We're in an age where content is not the primary measuring stick for excellence, rather entertainment is. Does it entertain? Does it grab attention? That is the new bar. Not is the content right, but hear me, y'all, content matters more than storyline. Content matters more than storyline. I don't care if it's got a great story. I don't care if it's got a neat plot. I don't care if you just want to see what it gets to the ending. Hear me, y'all. What we watch affects us. What we bring into our minds affects us. So much so, I don't have the details of it, but in the 90s, a book was written about how a group of people that were going to push LGBTQ motives, what they were going to do in Hollywood to push the agenda, and it worked. I need to get the title of it. It's, it, it, it's gone from me right now, but it's a book where basically a group of people, it was like 10, 15 people got together in the room and said, what are we going to do to push this where it's going to become normative in 20 years? And what's happened? They've done it. What's their medium? What's the message come through? It comes through entertainment. And y'all hear me, we're, we're on some pretty blurry lines here because think about this. If what we watch and call entertainment is sin, then we are glorifying and enjoying the very thing that put Christ on the cross in the first place. And we call it entertainment. We call it just needing a break. We call it just stepping back. And we do it oftentimes with no guard. Just let it come in, whatever it is. And we have to come back and think, is it God's standard or is it the culture's? Who are we going to live by? You all think oftentimes, what are my kids, what are my grandkids going to look back and say, man, y'all did what? I think back to some of the stuff that happened 100 years ago and I'm like, they allowed what to happen? 200 years ago, they allowed what to happen? You go all the way back to Paul's day. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 6. And he's trying to convince them that sleeping with a prostitute is wrong. Hear that again. He's having to convince the men of the church that sleeping with a prostitute was wrong. Because why? Culturally, it was not. Culturally, you could get off of work, you could go straight to a brothel, you could sleep with a prostitute, and you could go home, and you would be considered okay. It would not be considered wrong. And these people, even in the church, were trying to figure out some way to still say, okay, this has to be okay. Now, once again, I'm not trying to say, oh, this is the same thing, but what I am saying is I look back and I go, how in the world could they have missed it? And I think, what are our grandkids gonna say about me? What are my kids gonna say about me? What did I not stand up against? What did I enjoy and entertain that now, you know, what we do in moderation, the next generation does in excess, is the saying. What would our kids think? What will our grandkids one day look back and see from us? 
Y'all, really the scary part about this for us is that most of us have no clue it's even happened or happening. Most of us have no clue. This is kind of an interesting thing for me, but if people come over to my house and they spend some time with our family, and then maybe they see me at the depot or they see me out somewhere and let's say I give them a hug or whatever, oftentimes they'll say to me, you smell like your house, to which is always uncomfortable for me because I'm like, does that mean I stink? Like, does that mean my house stinks? I got three kids, there's poop and diapers everywhere. So is that what I smell like? I don't know. And typically they try and, you know, reassure me, no, it's not a bad smell, but you just smell like your house. So why can't I smell it? Because I'm there all the time, right? Now, if I were to move away and go somewhere, let's say I went on a trip for a month and come back to my house, I probably would smell it then. But I don't smell it now because I'm always there. (laughs) I'm always around it. You have to actually get away from some things in order to be able to see it. And y'all, with entertainment, it is this way. You have to actually get away from it to actually see and evaluate it. Think about this. When was the last time you detoxed from media? I'm not talking about a quote-unquote fast from one thing at a time. I'm talking about detoxed from media, whether it's social media, Netflix, whatever, all of it at the same time. Instead of binging on it, saying, I'm going to take some time to binge and be in the Word and be with the Lord, spend devoted time to Him. You know, it's interesting. I see a lot of youth, and you maybe have experienced this, where they go to a D-Now weekend or a retreat, and they feel this revival, and they wonder how they, how they can have that. Well, the reason that you have that, I typically tell them, is because this might be the first time, I don't know, in your life where in a day and a half you spent this much time in God's Word. Maybe it's not something special about the weekend, but maybe it's about what the weekend's about. And the problem is, is we have to get away in order to see clearly. We have to get away in order to detox and be able to understand what's really going on. You know, I can remember multiple times growing up, me watching a movie and telling my parents about it or saying something about it and bringing that very movie home and then watching it with them. Have you ever watched a movie with either your parents or somebody that you really respected of what they believed and you start watching it and you go, oh my gosh, wow. I promise they added cuss words since the last time. I promise that scene wasn't here. I promise that wasn't there. And if I'm honest, it seemed like any time I watched a movie with my parents, at some point I was extremely uncomfortable. But I wasn't whenever I wasn't with them. So what was the problem? Is I didn't notice it unless I felt like there was some semblance of accountability around me. It took the presence of my parents for me to really evaluate what it was I was watching. Y'all, if you go to 1 Corinthians 6 and you see the argument that Paul is making whenever he tells them, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin you commit is outside your body, but the sexually immoral person, that's a sin against your own self. It does something different to you. And he simply says, he goes, you are not your own. You were bought with the price, so glorify God in your bodies. What he's trying to help them understand is this is our bodies, if we're a follower of Jesus, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 to 20, go check it out. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which means that God's presence resides in you. So whatever you do, he is with you. How much greater should that be than parents watching along? How much greater should that be than having somebody in the room you wanna impress? 
Paul is trying to tell them, if you recognize that God is with you, it should change what you do. It should change the way you act. It should change the way you talk. It should change what you look like. If he knows every thought, it should change the way you repent of even the thoughts that come into your mind. All of us need time away from media. All of us need time away just from the world to spend time with the Lord and to come back with his perspective. This happens to me all the time, honestly. Just the other night, last Thursday, Emily's gone and I'm like, you know what? It's probably the first night in a while I can just do whatever I want to do for the last two hours of the night. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to watch a movie. I'm going to get crazy. And so I go and I'm looking at all the movies that we have and I'm like, I don't know what exactly to watch. And I come across Yes Man by Jim Carrey, a movie I've always enjoyed. I really liked it. Put it out, put it in and I'm watching it. And as I'm watching, I'm like, man, I don't, this is a little whatever than what I remember. And then kind of like this, then Emily gets home and she'll tell you, she came and she sits down beside me and she watches 10 minutes of it with me. And she goes, wow, in a span of 10 minutes, I saw this and this and this. And I went, geez, I know. And we ended up turning it off. And I'm like, what? This is a PG-13, not even considered anywhere, like a bad movie at all. And you watch it and you pay attention to what is it saying? What are you putting into your mind? This happens to me all the time, especially whenever I go back to old movies that I used to watch and love and enjoy and quote. And I go, geez, I don't remember that. But why? It's because as I grow closer to the Lord, I find my conscience and my sensitivity to the world is more like his and less like mine, what it used to be. Let me be the first to say this. I read this and I struggle. I am not perfect by any means. Neither do I think you think that I am. But what I want to do is I want to battle. What I want to do with culture and what they try and feed me, I want to fight against. The first way the culture attacks our mind is through the decline of standards and entertainment an agenda they try and push. The second way that the culture attacks our mind is the rise and pervasiveness of pornography. Now, shockingly, in the three and a half years I've been here, I've spoken very little about this subject. But hear me clearly whenever I say this. Porn is killing men and women alike. Across the board. Killing. And, and, and I want that to come across exactly how I mean it. It is killing a generation of people because it is ultimately making men or women the object of your own desire. It's making them an object for you to enjoy for your pleasure in that moment. I love the way Paul David Tripp talks about this. He says, in the moment whenever you're lusting after someone, you say, in this moment, you are no longer God's creation here to glorify him. You are for me. You are for my enjoyment. You are for my pleasure. You are for my sexual satisfaction. And the problem with pornography is it does not stay whenever you're done watching it. It goes with you. It goes with you and your eyes become the avenue by which you pick and choose whatever your heart delights in throughout the day. You evaluate people as objects. This isn't something that goes away quickly. This isn't something that goes away easily. As you fill your mind with this, whether it's soft or hardcore porn, it's killing both men and women. And we've got to stop fooling ourselves into thinking that it's not. We've got to stop fooling ourselves to thinking that this isn't really that big of a deal. We've got to stop fooling ourselves into thinking that, you know what, I can stop whenever I want to. That is not true. It's not true. You don't decide once you get married, now you're going to stop. You don't decide once you get in a relationship, now you're going to stop. If you're used to seeing multiple sexual partners all the time, what do you think is going to happen whenever you only have one? What's going to happen whenever something rough happens in your marriage? What's going to happen whenever you have a hard time? What's going to happen whenever, I don't know. What are you going to run back to? 
hear me y'all, whenever you look at the charts, porn is rising. The largest group of porn users are not your age. You know what age it is? It's my age. 25 to 45 is the largest by far users. What are people running to? What's ruining marriages? What's, what's redefining what sex is supposed to be like? And then one day you get in the bedroom and you recognize it's not what you've seen. You've been watching professionals and now you recognize that that's not the case. Hear me, y'all, seriously. This is something that warps your brain. It rewires the way that you think about people. It rewires the way that you think about sex. It rewires what you think about intimacy. And we've got to do whatever it takes to get rid of this. Culture isn't coming back on us. If anything, they're moving pornography into mainstream, into TV shows, moving it into mainstream, and then blowing up the TV shows like they're the greatest thing, whatever. Cultural standards will continue to change. Back then, it was one thing. At one point, it's this. At one point, it's that. At one point, like with Paul, it's going to be sleeping around with somebody at a brothel. Here is pornography. Not necessarily going and doing it, but delighting in it with our minds. Cultural standards will change, but God's standards do not. The question for us is which standard do you want to live by? We must make God's standard our standard as well. How big of a deal is this, really? Well, I think Jesus speaks for us. How big of a deal is it? Well, look at what he says to do in order to run from sexual sin, to run from lustful thoughts. Verse 29 and 30, he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. First, we see God's standard of purity. Second, we see God's method for purity. God's standard of purity, then God's method for purity. First, I want to say this. Is Jesus being literal? Obviously, no. Or everybody in here would be maimed to death, right? There's been people in the past who have thought, you know what, I got to do what Jesus says, I got to be literal. One specific example is a guy named Origen from the third century where he literally emasculates himself thinking that, okay, this is going to cure my lust problem. And then he realizes afterwards, I still lust after people. I don't mean this to be funny, but that's a tough lesson learned, right? This isn't necessarily a problem without us. This is a problem on the inside. What is Jesus saying? What does he really mean here? I love how D.A. Carson says, he says, what does Jesus mean? He means just this that we're to deal drastically with sin. Don't pamper it, flirt with it, enjoy nibbling a little around the edges. We're to hate it, crush it, dig it out. What I would say is he's saying pursue purity at all costs. Look at how Jesus explains this. If it causes you to sin, get rid of it. Is that your method? Is that my method? Do I really think sin is that serious? If you ever want to see the severity and the seriousness of sin, one of the best spots is Proverbs 1 through 9. There's a lot talked about in here, a lot of wisdom given here. A lot of your and my story is found in chapter 7. Chapter 4 ends with this idea, verse 23, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it is the wellspring of life. And then chapter 5, 6, and 7, there's all these practical ideas about fighting against adultery. Fighting against the adulterous woman is what it's saying. Basically, lust 
In two spots in there, I want you to see what it says. Proverbs 6.32, it says this. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it does what? Destroys himself. You get over to Proverbs 7, 22 through 23. It says all at once, he, meaning this young boy, follows her, the seductress woman. As an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. Y'all hear me, I don't think we understand. I don't think we understand. Sexual sin does something different to us. It does something different to us. It mars the whole part of our body. And Jesus is saying, you have got to flee from it. This is why Paul, Colossians 3, 5, he says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then the examples he gets, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which for us, we typically mean thinking about taking things. Well, covetousness in the Ten Commandments means coveting your neighbor's stuff or your neighbor's wife. He says, put these to death. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Sexual sin is something we have to fight, and we have to fight it by hating it. It took me too long to understand this. I've got to hate this sin. I've got to hate what it's done in my past. I've got to hate what it's done in my family. I've got to hate what it's done in family members that I know. I've got to hate in what it's done to my friends. I've got to hate what it's done in my life and the people that are around me. And y'all, what's so hard for me is I can just go without even thinking about it. There's not a person in this room who has not been affected by sexual sin, either personally or someone you know. There's not someone in here who doesn't know a family that's been ruined because of this. No marriage starts with somebody saying, I'm going to have an affair. Nobody in a marriage would ever say, yeah, I plan on going and having an affair on my wife. It starts in the small ways. And oftentimes it starts long before you're ever married. We don't have a switch. Or we can just switch it whenever we want to, to turn into a completely different person. You know, our struggle is we don't hate sin. Truthfully, we don't hate sin because we believe two lies. That sin satisfies more than God does. And that pleasure is greater than purity. We truthfully believe the lie that sin satisfies more than God does and that pleasure is greater than purity. And these are just lies. I want you to look again at what Jesus says. Verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. If Jesus is using hyperbole, what is he saying? He's saying there is no sacrifice too great to your purity. We have to trust that Jesus knows the truth. We have to trust that he's right in this. We have to trust that he knows what's best. You know, this word right here, causes, if it causes you to sin, this word causes is really important. William Barclay, who's a New Testament scholar from the 1900s, helps us in understanding the background of this. Regarding the word for causes you to sin, he says this word means stumbling block. It's an interesting word. It's the Greek word scandalon, where you also would get scandalous later on. Scandalon, which means the bait stick in a trap. It is the stick or arm on which the bait was fixed and which operated the trap to catch the animal lured to its own desires or to its own destruction. So the word came to mean anything which causes a person 
destruction. The way it's used most often is as a tripping line that somebody's walking, they don't see it and they trip over this and they fall. Or as a massive hole that's in the ground that's covered up with brush and you don't recognize it till you stand on it and you fall into it. It's a trap. But the way Jesus talks about it doesn't talk about like it's a trap. He says you can see it with your hands. You can touch it. If it causes you to sin, do whatever you need to do to get rid of it. The stumbling block isn't something that's a mystery. It's typically things that are right in front of us. If I were to modernize this, how would Jesus say this today? Instead of saying, if, if your eye causes you to sin, cut it out, I think he would say something like this. If you can't have a browser on your phone without looking at porn, get rid of it. Put parental controls on it, get covenant eyes. It's a great resource. Get accountable to you, get something on it. If that doesn't help, get rid of it. That's not too great of a sacrifice. If social media leads you to lust, get rid of it. Or get rid of the people you follow who make you. If a TV show leads you to lust, get rid of it. If a movie leads you to lust, get rid of it. If a dating relationship leads you to lust, make changes. And if it does not change, get rid of him or her. And this sounds really crazy. Even if kissing your boyfriend or girlfriend leads you to lust, then stop. It won't kill you. There's no sacrifice too great. If Jesus wants to say, if your eye causes you to sin, get rid of it, I don't think any of those are too extreme. The problem is, is oftentimes we have the fear of being radical, and in our attempt to not be radical, we run from Jesus' clear command. The sad thing is, is all that Jesus is saying here, he's given us a biblical definition of what does it look like to repent. To repent means that you acknowledge where you have fallen and you take action not to do so again. When we fall, and we will fall, we take action. We do something to turn from it. We've got to start believing the joy of purity is greater than the pleasure of lust, always. While our world glorifies impurity and sexual promiscuity and porn, casual sex, if there's really such a thing and there's not and whatever, while they glorify it, the Bible warns us over and over again about it. Ultimately, we need to adopt God's standard along with his methods. We need to adopt them. Y'all, three questions arise from this that I think you and me have to ask ourselves. Is one is this, will you live by God's standard? Number one is, will you live by God's standard? Will you believe that purity is not just a matter of action, but also of intent? Will you believe that lust is not okay whether it's an act or a thought? Will you believe and start to apply the standard that I must repent not only of wrong actions, but also of wrong desires? Now I wanna be clear here, you can't always control whether something comes into your mind. Martin Luther says it best. You can't control whether a bird lands on your hand or not, but you can control whether he lays an e a nest there. You can't control if a bird lands on your head, but you can control whether he lays a nest on it or not. We may have thoughts come in, but it's not the thought that kills us, it's whenever we let it stew and we think about it. So one, will you live by God's standard? Two, will you fight using God's method? Will you fight using God's method? And his method's quite clear. Do whatever it takes to battle impurity and lust in your life. The first thing I would tell you is Job 31.1. Learn it, memorize it, make it your own. Job says, I've made a covenant with my own eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? 
I've made a covenant with my eyes that I will not lust after her. Or for you girls, I've made a covenant with my eyes that I will not lust after him. It starts with you being resolved about that. Maybe you need to have strict guardrails in your relationships. I would encourage all of you to do that. Here, once again, I am not perfect. Emily, my dating relationship, we were not perfect. I was a believer for a month whenever we started dating. In the first several months of our relationship, we dilly-dallied, we, we messed with this, we made sort of boundaries and broke them and sort of boundaries here and broke them and it wasn't for a while until finally we said, you know what, if we're serious about this, if we wanna follow Christ, we've got to make some changes. And we said, here are the boundaries and we know if we break one of them, it's gonna get higher as far as the boundaries go. Where that means curfew was 11, now curfew's at 10. Where that means we're not, we're in the living room only alone at your apartment or we're not all alone in your apartment or we're not all alone in the car. We're not all alone. The time whenever we talk, whenever I tell you goodbye tonight, it's gonna be outside your door on the front porch. Whatever it takes. Maybe you need to put those in relationship. Maybe you need to have guardrails on your phone. And let me rephrase that. You need to. Girl or guy, I would encourage it. You know what it means whenever you're accountable to everything that you see on your phone? or at least have some form of accountability. I'm 30, and I have people put parental controls. I have my wife put parental controls on my phone. You know why? Because I want to be protected. I have covenant eyes on my phone. You know why? Because guys I disciple, I want to have covenant eyes. I'm not going to ask them to do something I'm not going to do, and it protects me. It sends a report of what I look at to my mentor every week. You need to put guardrails on your phone. Some of you just need to get rid of one for a while. Once again, that sounds radical, but I don't think it's too much compared to what Jesus is saying. You need to have guidelines on what you watch. Y'all, we can know what's in TV shows before we ever watch them. Emily and I, if we're going to watch a TV show, we're going to look up and see what's in it. Now, hear me clearly. I'm not saying, oh, if you watch a whole show and there's one part here somewhere in the 12 episodes of the season, oh, we got to cut it all out. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying if there's anything black and white in there, just take it. I'm saying you know what the line is or you should. If a TV show is based in and glorifying things that are against God's word, we should not watch it, period. You can look at pluggedin.com, which is focused on the family. They give reviews of movies and TV shows, or IMDb Parents Guide, which isn't always accurate, but it's on there. Maybe you just need to get educated on the truth about porn and its effects on you. A website I'd encourage every one of you to go to is fightthenewdrug.org fightthenewdrug.org. It talks about what it does to your brain, to your heart, and to the people around you. And most of all, all of us in here, we need to learn more and more how to hate sin as much as God does. Remember once again, anytime we glorify what God calls sin, or celebrate, or call it entertainment, or whatever, we glorify the very thing that put Christ on the cross in the first place. Hear me once again. We're going to fall. We're going to fail. That's not the bar of success. The bar is what do you do when you do? Do you repent? Do you turn? The third thing I want to say is I want to address those in here who have brokenness from their past by asking, will you bring your brokenness to the Lord and let him heal you? Y'all, unfortunately, I can say there's nothing you have done or will do that I have not. Unfortunately, I can say that three and a half of years of my college life were spent 
living kind of how I wanted to regarding purity, whether it's pornography, whether it's sleeping around, pornography starting in seventh grade for me. Whenever I became a follower of Jesus, things changed in me. There was this new fight. There was this new battle. But you know what the main thing I struggled with is I felt like everywhere I went, I had a parachute behind me pulling me. I felt like everywhere I went, there was this weight I was carrying of all the mess that I had done in my life, of all the people whom I'd hurt, of all the girls that I had used, of all the mess that I had watched and put in front of my eyes. I can remember specifically, this is still a year afterwards. Emily and I were been dating for nine months at this point and I'm at a camp and I'm still thinking, God, I cannot get the crap that's happened in my life out of my mind. I can't just let it go. I still feel the guilt of what I've done. And y'all, I'll never forget just crying out to God about it, saying, God, is this going to be the rest of my life? Do I have to carry this the rest of my life? And y'all, I'll never forget, I closed my eyes to go to sleep that night, and I saw it as clear as day. I just saw my life. It was almost like a timetable or a time lapse would be a better way to say it for y'all of just events in my life, of just mess that I've done, of the things that constantly haunted me. And it's almost like a zoom out view and I just saw this black marker covering everything. As events came up in my life, it was covered. As events came up in my life, it was covered. As events came up in my life, it was covered. And once I became a follower of Jesus, it was like a bright light on my timetable. It was like this massive light. Now, Emily and I, I already told you, we'd struggled with stuff. I already told you that. But my life as a Christian was bright. You know why? Because I had to learn to believe Jesus that if I brought it to him and confessed it to him, he had the power to get rid of it. My struggle wasn't that he was holding on to the guilt. My struggle was that I was. My struggle was that I couldn't believe some of the stuff that I had done. But the truth is, is that's not the way that you were supposed to see it. You're supposed to see, you know what, no matter what I've done, God still loves me anyway. And what he says, he can take it for as far as the east is from the west, he can do. What he says in Isaiah where you may be red, scarlet red, but God can make you white as snow. He can do that. You have to believe him whenever he says, 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to say, you are with me. It's paid for. And y'all hear me, some of you in here tonight, I know your life, maybe a lot of your Christian journey has been based in guilt over something dealing with this. And I want you to hear me loud and clear, you can win. Some of you at some point, a lot of you at some point have said, you know what, this is a battle, this is just going to be my struggle. You can win. You can win. Galatians 5, 24, let it be a banner. Those who are in Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. You want to talk about Philippians 4, 13, of how you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you? If we think we can't beat sin, we're denying the power of God, not ourselves. And so hear me what I want to tell you tonight. If you haven't repented, that's the first step. You need to ask God for forgiveness, knowing that he will forgive you because he's gracious and he's merciful if you're struggling with a guilt you need to believe God whenever he says that he doesn't think about it you need to take action whatever that looks like tonight I want to tell you the Lord is your advocate 
And I'll say this, sin always looks ugliest when it's in the dark. When it's in the dark, you can believe it's lies, that you can't win, you can't beat it, you're always going to fall, that you're going to be the only one struggling here. That's bull. It's not true. You know, we have to fight for this. We have to believe God's word in this. We have to live for him. We've got to adopt God's standard and live by it. We've got to adopt God's method for fighting sin in our lives. And better yet, if we don't want to, we really need to ask ourselves some questions. Our goal is to be holy as he is holy. And y'all, we want to help y'all do that. We're not perfect, but we serve a God who is. And we're going to seek to be as much like him as we possibly can. And we want to push each of you to do that as much as we possibly can. Let me pray for us.